is that uh, that we take opportunities physically to humble ourselves as we go before the Lord. And I had one of you say to me that you grew up in a church where the minute uh, one of the leaders of the church would raise his hands, every man in the church would raise his hands, and how that has negative associations. Well, remember, if we ask you to be seated, you are all seated and don't feel that that's insincere. And the point is that all of us often do things with our bodies in unison. Uh, We clap, we cheer, we stand, we're seated. And uh, I always want to give freedom to you to not do whatever you think is not pleasing to the Lord. There's no uh, law that prevails here except the law of love. But this morning, not to have the men stand, but rather to have uh, those of you who are willing Join me in kneeling as we go before the Lord in prayer. I know the floor is hard. I will be on it with you. As I begin to bring to you a message from the Word of God, I again... I'm sorry to inform you, I'm not preaching the text that's in your bulletin, but instead I'm going to preach the what I believe is the origin of the office of deacon in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, and the title of our sermon will be, To Neglect the Word of God in Order to Serve Tables. And so this will indicate to you that I'm preaching on the subject of the office of deacon and the way that the church works together. And uh, this morning, it's it's fitting that we do this because we have the privilege of uh, witnessing and joining together in the setting apart of four men to the office of deacon. And the four men who will be set apart are Brandon Pickett. Brandon, would you stand, please? He's counting money. He's already serving as a deacon, isn't he? And then Lucas Weeks is right here. And would you note that these men are all wearing ties this morning? Stand up, Lucas, and face them. I guess we'll call that a tie. (laughs) Stay standing. And then Mark Westerfield. And then finally, Eric Wilson is at the back. And Eric quickly put on his coat when he knew he was going to have to stand up. Now, I think all of us should be very impressed by how these men look. Wait until you see Brandon. They look very presentable today. Thank you, gentlemen. You may be seated. These men have demonstrated great faithfulness in our church. And you, as a congregation, have chosen them to serve you in an office, and it's an office of authority. And if you note, these men are fairly young. And yet it's fitting for us to recognize that the Holy Spirit has given them gifts to rule. And so after the sermon this morning, we will be joining together and setting them apart by the laying on of hands and prayer for the office to which God has called them. But it's fitting that we study a little bit about the nature of that office. What is the office of deacon? And how does it serve us? And more than that... What is the nature of the church as a family, and how do our officers serve us? Now, there are a number of places in the New Testament that we are told about the different gifts 
that all of us have been given within the body, the church of Jesus Christ. For instance, turn with me and read with me, please, in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. This is one of the places in Scripture where we see this theme of God providing for the family of the church, the household of faith. And there we see a listing of some of these gifts, Romans 12, 1 through 8. Now, we know the first two verses uh, quite well, but let's continue. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We call this a worship service. And what we do during this service is called liturgy. A few years ago, we had a woman who... Uh, was uh, doctrinally where we are as a church, come and visit us one Sunday, and then she left. And, and when my wife talked to her and said, uh, are you going to come back? She said, no, I, I, I like a service that has liturgy. And I kind of laughed and I said, so we didn't do anything? Because the word liturgy just simply means the work of the people. And I think what she meant to say was that she liked a church that had a very formal liturgy, and she defines liturgy as being formal, all right? Well, in fact, any service you've ever been in has a liturgy. And this morning, we have engaged in a very precise liturgy that is taken from the time of the Reformation, that follows a set pattern, and this is our spiritual service of worship. But when you leave, typically you probably think, well, I'm done with my worship service. But you're not, because the whole context of this text is to say to us that the way we live our lives, day in, day out, is the same thing. It's worship. It's service. So what kind of service is it talking about here? What kind of worship? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the removing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect for... Through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Is that how you think of the person sitting next to you in the pew? I'm so grateful that I grew up in a home where my parents made it very clear that our family was not an idol, but that our family was just a part of the higher family, which was the family of God. And this meant often that we sacrificed considerably for the sake of the body of Christ. That there was never any sense in our home that that was sort of a hat you put on here and then you came home and you had the family time There was a seamless integration of the family of God and the family of the blood. And so, for instance, we knew Sundays. They were not special warm times where we fenced ourselves off from other people, but we went home, and our home was filled with people from the family of God. We always had dinner with all kinds of stragglers and and who knows what, and spent the afternoon talking about the things of God, and you think, ooh, But no, it was fun, because it was clear that my father and mother cared more about the things of God than than football games, 
You know what I'm saying? And, and so there was this integration. We hung around church until my dad was done counseling and encouraging the last straggler on the front steps of the church. Almost always, we were one of the last couple of families at a church of about probably six or seven hundred to leave. Stay and watch who's the last to leave here. And you see the people that have the deepest understanding of the nature of the church as a family. And so it says here what? It says, we have many members, one body, and all the members do not have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Is that how you think of the people next to you this morning? Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And so what we see here is that God has given these gifts from his Holy Spirit for the building up of the body. And you know that the... um, You know that the example in Scripture that's used is the example of the body that it talks about the fact that the eye has a gift, that the hands have a gift, that the feet have gifts, and it talks in Corinthians about the fact that the eye can't say to the hand or the hand to the eye, I don't need you, or the hand can't say, I wish I were an eye. And much of the work in the church consists of trying to get the body to function together. Um, If you've had a stroke... And all of the habitual uh, uh, coordination that's happened from the time you were in the womb is all of a sudden shut down. You have to relearn. It's very difficult to get the body to function in the way it wants. You can have thoughts in your mind. can be very precise, very clear, but your mouth tries to say them. You've had a stroke. It doesn't work. All right? Well, that's much like the church. Uh, there are many people who, uh, in churches around the country who think they have the gift of being a preacher, but they don't. And so the church has never called them. And they resent it. I remember a pastor when I was serving out in Boulder, Colorado, saying, every church has a frustrated preacher and he causes much of the problem. And it's true. Uh, There are other people who think that they have the gift of teaching, but they don't. But they're constantly trying to get the church to allow them to exercise a gift the Holy Spirit hasn't given them. There are other people who have the gift of giving, but they don't. They don't give. So God has given them the gift of giving, but they fight against it. There are other people who have the gift of service, and uh, they serve and serve and serve, but they're not encouraged, and they grow discouraged in the exercise of their gift because it's a hidden gift. So a lot of the work of leadership in a church is getting those who think they have one gift to recognize their gift is actually another gift, and getting those who have a gift that the church doesn't honor getting that gift to be seen publicly and honored. In other words, leadership in the church is much like leadership in the home, where you're constantly working to get the work of the home done by the people that should be doing it. Some of you may have a wife who um, is quite happy for your children uh, to allow her to do all the work. And uh, as fathers, you say to your children after the evening meal, go in and clean up the kitchen for your mother. And uh, all of a sudden, your wife smiles, you know, never occurred to her, you know. 
So, we look at the church and we see that the language of Scripture over and over again is the language of family. The church is a family. Now, some of you are immediately thinking, yes, and that's why smaller churches are superior. And I answer, no. Uh, Smaller churches do not have any easier of a time being family than large churches. You say, oh, that's bunk. But it isn't. Because very large families can have sweet communion, sweet smaller subfamilies that work well together. Out in Boulder, some of the most beautiful fellowship we had was in this huge church where we all were part of small groups in that church, some through their Sunday school class, some through midweek Bible studies. And I have been a part of small churches that have absolutely no family relationship. But the small churches exist purely to fight amongst themselves. Uh, And immediately I'm thinking of a brother here who spends his life when he's not in this town preaching. And he was telling me that he preaches to a church that has two sides. One side is antinomian, hates the law of God, and the other side is legalistic. All right. And it's a small church and they just fight these two factions constantly. And and then he said, and the curious thing is, it doesn't diminish in number. And and that's because sometimes families exist simply to hate each other. and, and, And if they were ever to divorce, it would be such a disappointment. Now, I'm not saying I'm in favor of divorce in that church or in marriages that exist like that. But it's amazing how our, um, our sicknesses and diseases can give us a reason for existing. Uh, think of the hatred between union and management in many union shops. You know, if you took away the, the opposition between management and, and the union, uh, some businesses would cease to exist. Because that's why they they exist. Now, look at what the Apostle Paul says here in Romans 12 about the different gifts. The fact that these gifts are the way that we present our bodies, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. That these gifts are a spiritual service of worship. That these gifts have been given to us for the good of the body. That these gifts are very specific. They, they, They name some of them here. He named them. Prophecy. Service, teaching, exhorting, giving, leading, showing mercy. And then there are other places in the New Testament that, that mention these gifts also. So what is your gift? You all have it. If you're believers, God has given gifts to you for the good of the church. So what is it? Now I know some of you are sitting there thinking, well, not me. I don't have a gift. Yes, you do. And it's interesting, if you were to turn to the person in this church that knows you best and said to them, what is my gift? Almost always, they could name, name it very quickly. Our gifts are often much more evident to people that, other than ourselves. Um, sometimes I wish worship services were informal enough that I could just take about 15 minutes now for us to stop and for... you to get together with people that know you and they they tell you what is your gift and I'll I'll do it symbolically by saying to you and bear with me on this what is Neil Alberson's gift 
Now, it's obvious to me what his gift is. Some of you know him. What is his gift? Huh? Compassion for the lost? He knows scripture. Yeah, see, I would say the gift of faith. Neil has the gift of faith. Prayer, I think, and the gift of faith are inextricably bound. All right. Dare I do another one? All right. No, I better not. I'll get in trouble. What is David Canfield's gift? It's pretty intimidating, isn't it? When I sit and listen to him, I just smile. <laughs> he has a considerable degree of gray matter, doesn't he? Um, yes, his brain, but I, so far I have not seen the Bible list that as a spiritual gift. <laughs> but what does somebody with a mind like that, what does he do? Huh? He does have the gift of humility, yeah. And that makes that gift of the brain so much more precious. Uh, David, I believe, has the gift of teaching. Um, now, Carol, his wife, and I'll stop with this one. It's obvious to all of us. What gift does Carol have? Uh, yeah, she does have the gift of music, but I'd say clearly compassion and service. I mean, that woman does more in a heartbeat than I'll do in the rest of my life. We had an elders meeting at their house this last week, and somebody helped me list the different choices of drink that we had. What were they? There was decaf coffee and caffeinated coffee. Come on, help me. There was a combination of juice of, what was it? Lemonade and grape juice. What else was there? There was tea. There was water. And I want to say there was something else, but I might... Oh, apple crisp, yes. Yes, apple crisp. Beautiful table set. I thought, you know, let's come back to the Canfields every week. or Every month. Actually, we don't meet every week. No, you don't want us to? And who is it that's setting this unbelievably large number of packages of cake mix? I mean, it's like 750? What's that about? <laughs> Extravagance in service. No, it was 1,500. It was 750 of each. Yes, yes, okay. We exceeded both. All right. Some of you have the gift of giving. Have you seen? The elders say to you, we have a problem. We want to erase the deficit by the end of the year. And we're within how much, David? I think we're within, what, 6000 to seven thousand dollars of sixty-five thousand goal, we're within six or seven thousand of erasing the deficit in the last couple of weeks by the commitments that those of you that have the gift of giving have given, including many of our children. Now, what about the gift of the diaconate? What kind of a gift is that? Well, if you Look with me at the book of Acts, the sixth chapter. You'll see that gift. Let me say a few words about it as we go into the ordination of our deacons. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, 
a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And so the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Isn't that sweet, that last statement? We pass over that. We don't see it. But look at that last statement. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. If you were to name the one group that would never believe in Jesus Christ in the Gospels, who would it be? It'd be the priests. And there's this little incidental statement. Now, let me make just a couple of comments about this. What's the nature of the conflict in the church at this time? It's a complaint, and we deal with complaints constantly in leading the household of faith. Constant, constant, constant complaints. Just like your home, just like your marriage. We live in a fallen condition as believers. That's why the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. And the complaint in this case is between what are labeled the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebrews. Uh, There were widows, and the church every day would take a collection of food and would take it to the widows in their midst. This was part of the job of caring and compassion. And a division arose naturally. Almost all complaints and divisions find the crevice in the group where it can lodge, where it can get a handhold. Like if you're climbing on the wall, you know, you have to find the crevice. And here the crevice is the tension between the, the Greek or the Hellenized Jews and the home, the homeboys, all right? The, the Hebrews were essentially the hometown group. They had not gone as far afield in the Roman Empire. They had not been, as they would say, corrupted like the Hellenistic Jews had been corrupted. And so you had this natural tension between those who were more cosmopolitan, were more Romanized, were more a part of the empire, and then the Hebrew Jews who were pristine and clean. You had the Johnny-come-latelys, which were the Hellenized Jews, and then you had this, uh, the old-timers, the charter members. And naturally, there was apparently an inequity in the distribution of the food to these two groups. And so the complaint came from the new timers. They said, hey, we're getting overlooked. You know, you're not treating us fairly. And all of us can understand this. Old timers in every church have trouble seeing the newcomers and treating them in an equitable way, a fair way. And so the complaint went to the apostles and the apostles realized that it was going to take a lot of time to try to mediate the conflict and it would take, it would be time taken away from the task they had been given specifically, which was uh, summed up under the title, the, the Ministry of the Word of God. Now, you know that that includes a lot of things, that it includes preaching, it includes teaching, it includes discipline, it includes prayer, 
and they saw that they were going to be shoved over into what was essentially a compassionate administrative task. And this is a constant tension. So many churches today, if you go into the elders' meetings, the elders' meetings are spent dealing with financial and administrative uh, battles and totally avoiding uh, discipline, prayer, and uh, ministry of the word. So what did they do? They got together and they selected uh, men who uh, were not spiritual but were understood to have made a lot of money for themselves in the businesses that they ran and therefore were obviously good at administrative tasks. And they said, well, you men are good with money, and so why don't you handle this and we can forget about it? But that's not what they did. What they did was they selected men who were what? Who were filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, they didn't see that the task of making a lot of money for yourself in a business was similar to the task of trying to distribute the, 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 the compassion of the church in a fair way. And so they just shoved them in regardless of their spiritual qualifications. The first qualifications for deacons were that they were men that were filled with the Holy Spirit. And who is the first martyr of the Christian church? It's the first man mentioned. It's Stephen, a deacon. And what did he do just before he died that got them to hate him? Huh? He preached. And it was one heck of a sermon. So you see Stephen and you realize these were men that were filled with faith in the Holy Spirit. And it was to those men that they gave the job of mediating the complaints in this church and specifically focused on the issue of the ministry of compassion. Now, what's the application of this today? The application is that today when we set apart these men to the ministry of the diaconate, we are doing precisely what we see done in the early church. And it is their job to take the money we give, to take the goods that we give, to take the wealth of us as a corporate assembly, and to apply it to individuals based on their judgment of what is good, what is fair, and what is needed. And this is an office, and it has authority. And it is only given to men that have the ability spiritually to discern and to make these decisions. All right? And I have my dear brother David in the back telling me I have to stop. And I love being told that by you. So how do I bring this to a conclusion? Well, let me... Give me a second. Let me summarize this way. First of all, we should be careful not to allow divisions to develop and grow in our church. But when we have problems, we should deal with them quickly and thoroughly, praying about them and then trusting that the Lord has in our fellowship what is needed to address the problem. All right? Second, we should learn that the things that naturally rise up to separate us and cause divisions, things like race and class and job status and wealth and sex and old-timer and new-timer, none of these things should allow, be allowed to come between us and cause jealousy among us. 
but we should work hard to bring those things under discipline and to keep that from happening. Third, we should not take the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given each of us lightly in the church. All of us should be willing to use our gifts. We should not neglect our gift to do the work of someone else. And we should allow the church to make the judgment of what our gift is and how it should be used. And it's probably that third one and the first one that you need to hear the most. If you have a gift, you must use it for the good of the church. And if you don't, the church will be hurt, no matter how insignificant you feel. And the church is the one that makes the distinction and decides what gift you have. So if people come to you and say, you know, brother, I think you think you have such and such a gift, but we have prayed about it and we have watched and listened. And that, in fact, is not your gift. Don't have your pride be hurt. But accept it. Do you know that no man can be ordained as a pastor without a call? It doesn't matter what that man says about his special messages from the Lord that he's to be a pastor. If a church does not call him to be a pastor, he may not be ordained. And so that's true of all of us. The church has to look at us and recognize the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's not enough for us to be lone rangers and say what we think our gift is. I'd like the men to come forward, and I'd like the elders and deacons also to come forward who are here, please. And if the deacons to be ordained would stand here facing me, please, and then the elders and deacons stand facing the congregation who are already ordained and installed. This is Eric, Eric Wilson. And this is Brandon Pickett. This is Mark Westerfield. And over here, serving, is Lucas. All right, face me, please. Now, I...